the name of it. The book is called Micah's Touch, God Sightings from the Edge of Autism. Uh, and the book's not actually about autism. It's about God and how we see God and how God reveals himself even in the most unlikely people, circumstances, situations. Um, and I'm not going to read the first chat, the first part of the book because if I have a book signing, I may do that when the book is, uh, comes out. But and I and I, and I want y'all, I don't want you to bore y'all with it twice. Uh, so I'm gonna. I'm, I felt like the Lord led me to to this certain chapter, which is sort of in the middle of the book. So to bring you up to speed on what's going on, so you're just not completely lost. Um, in 1993, I decided I didn't believe anymore. Uh, if you could think and imagine for a moment everything going as horribly wrong almost that you could possibly think of other than losing a child to death or, or a loved one to death. Um, you lose your job, you're in a fire, you lose your, your uh, appearance, you lose your voice, um, and uh, then you, uh, your, your uh, marriage ends, you become a single parent with three boys, four, two four-year-olds, an 18-month-old, and, uh, and at the age of 27, and then your 18-month-old is diagnosed with severe autism. And you're told by the time they're 13 that they will be institutionalized. And uh, that's kind of how the book begins. And then God shows himself in an amazing way, which is where the title comes from, which you'll have to read the book to see that. Um, and, uh, and, that bring, and so the first part of the book is about that. Then we go into a section that's just about how God reveals himself to us in daily life. And it begins with a chapter called uh, Firefly Eyes and, and Dancing Trees, um, which is the chapter preceding the one I'm going to read. And it's just about how God, uh, you know, it starts with a question from one of my boys, Dad, can you see God? And uh, my answer is yes, but it, it's not can we see God, it's will we see God. It's not what you see, it's how you see. Um, it's, it's asking for new vision, new eyes, new way of seeing. So that brings us to the chapter called Father Hunger. In uh, Matthew chapter 6, God tells us, or Jesus tells us to pray to God and call Him Father. And throughout Scripture, our Heavenly Father is referred to as our Father. And in 25 years of being a pastor and in ministry, I've discovered that a lot of people, including myself, have a real problem with that imagery. Because we either don't know what a real father is, we have no frame of reference for that, or the image of a father that we have is extremely painful or abusive. And what that, what that does is, without us being able to break through that, we're unable to enjoy God at the full level of intimacy that He wants for us to enjoy Him. And so that's what I'm struggling with in this, in this chapter. It's called Father Hunger. If the, love of a father will not, if the love of a father will not make a child delight in Him, what will? John Owen. It was December of 1993 that we left our little home behind the church in Heflin, Alabama, and moved to Rome, Georgia to be closer to family. Broke with no job, I borrowed enough money from my parents to rent a small two-bedroom apartment for me and the boys. I enrolled the boys in school and got a job delivering chemicals for coloring carpet. 
Believing that my days in ministry were behind me, I cashed in my retirement, took out school loans to live on, and enrolled in school in order to get my teaching certificate, believing that a teacher's schedule would be the best with the boys' schedule. The boys would get off the school bus at my mom's house, and I would pick them up as soon as I was finished with work or school. Before long, it was becoming clear that something was happening to our little family as imperfect as we were. In the same way that God was communicating to Micah and challenging my assumptions through Micah, God was speaking to our family, ministering, shaping, transforming us at a level much deeper than we could understand at the time. Something deep was occurring. My role as provider and protector was still there, but an intimacy and trust was developing. I was becoming more and more apparent, it was becoming more and more apparent that the boys trusted me unconditionally, and a quiet, unspoken depth between father and sons was growing. Was God creating within our family a model of relationship between father and sons that he desired for me to have with himself? Was he calling me out of hiding? After the day in the parking lot, and Micah began to touch me more often. No one else, just me, in simple yet profound ways. Most often he would simply come up and wrap his arm around my leg and look up at me with total and complete trust. This may seem quite normal to parents of children who do not suffer with autism, but for a child like Micah, it was an intense display of trust and dependency. Slowly, something began to happen in my heart as well. It is probably time that I let you know on a little secret from my past. I played for the Atlanta Falcons. Well, well, Pee Wee League anyway. I was a Falcon and my dad was my coach. It was all so official, his whistle and coach outfit, my red jersey with the black falcon emblem and lettering on it, the mouth guard, pads, and helmet that barely fit down over my oversized head and came off with even more difficulty. The field practice and Gatorade all came together in a perfect proclamation that I was a football player. It was official. It didn't seem to matter that, no one, that not one of us on the team knew what we were doing except for my dad. We were a falcon. Why should it matter that we didn't know what we were doing? In our minds, we were the Super Bowl champions, and that was all that mattered. My dad coached me and all my siblings in football, baseball, basketball. He came to our games. He was there. At home, inside or out, his cigar smoke was always in the air. He was always working on his old truck in the basement, always coming home from work in his sports car and bringing a paper hat they made him wear on the line. He would get out of the car, ruffle my hair, and put the hat firmly on my head. In my mind then, and still to this day, that hat was his way of showing all who cared to see that I was his son. He would take me for rides in his white Austin Healy with red leather seats and a convertible top. He would put me on the back of his motorcycle and I would hold on around his waist as we flew down the road. He was my dad and I was his son. There was a time when I knew that I was safe, accepted, valuable, loved. A time before the box on the carport. I had never thought much about it until I began to write, reflect, and remember but there was a time in my life where I never doubted if I fit in with kids in the neighborhood, at school, 
or with members of my own family. A time I can remember before I even cared if I did or if I didn't fit in. A time when I belonged. When I knew where I fit in the larger scheme of things. There was a time in my life before I learned to posture for position or believed I needed to shade the truth in order to win the approval of others. There was a time when I never withdrew from groups because being alone was better than having to deal with the possibility of being rejected or shunned. There was a time when loyalty, love, and belonging were not words and concepts that I read about in books or saw on television and in the movies, but forces that dwelled within the deepest parts of who I was. They just were. There was a time before the box and the day that I discovered it on the carport. I can't remember if it was during my fourth or fifth grade year. My guess is fourth because mom and dad divorced sometime in my third. It was fall. I do remember that. I remember watching the autumn leaves falling as the bus went through the neighborhood. Their colors of red, orange, brown, and yellow swirling and then eventually reaching the ground. Our school bus, with Mrs. B sternly at the wheel, faithfully delivered us to our homes and neighborhoods every day without fail. Mrs. B did not like my family very much. I remember distinctly my first day of school boarding only to hear her proclamation for all to hear. Another loudmouth burns, kid. <laughs> then she looked at me and sternly commanded, You, you sit right behind me and don't say a word. However, we did not like her any more than she liked us. <laughs> when my oldest sister got her driver's license, she loaded up her 1965 Mercury convertible Cougar and set in motion a plan that had, been, that had before then been only a dream. With the top down, they slowly rode in front of Mrs. B's bus all the way to school, aggravating and egging her on all the way to the high school. It was glorious. <laughs> Until my sister's car died right in front of the school. My other sister had to drag her on the bus that afternoon. The ride home, and on many afternoons afterwards, was most unpleasant if you were a Burns. Fall meant football, which meant the daily neighborhood game in someone's front yard. Before the box, I loved football. As the bus began to slowly make its arrival at my stop, I started making my way down the aisle and slapping Craig Ivy on the back of the head in that fun, carefree, carefree way guys do. Hey, Burns, my best friend Rick yelled. Football in 30 minutes at my house. You in? Yep, I answered. Rick and I have known each other since we were four, and yard ball was more like a given than an appointment. The bus stopped, and Mrs. B reached for the lever, pulled it quickly, and the door swung open. Hurry up, Mr. Burns, she said. We don't have all day. I jumped down the stairs, checked the mail, and watched the exhaust fumes as Mrs. B's bus headed up the hill. Our home was a brown rancher with a neat yard and a full basement. My parents bought it in 1969 for around $13,000. Today it would sell for much more. I had a nice yard, a full basement, a roller, for roller skating, ping pong, and antique cars my dad was restoring. There were three bedrooms, one for my parents, one for the boys, and one for the girls. The living room was large, spacious, and beautiful, while the family room and kitchen were cozy and warm. It was home. The house also had a steep drive that fed into the open carport where the house sat on top of a small hill. On this particular day, as I got off Mrs. B's bus, I gradually made my way up the drive and began to notice a large cardboard box sitting in the cardboard carport.
in front of the kitchen door. I ran up the drive to see what, what it was, but the closer I got, the more I began to slowly have a fear that came over me. I noticed gold, silver, wood sticking out. I walked up as my heart began to beat heavy in my chest, and an unease began to swell up in my throat. And I took a breath. I reached the box, sitting there in that empty carport with cold cement and the smell of oil stains. I opened the individual flaps of the box, one at a time, with each section revealing the contents. It was filled with my trophies. My team pictures of all the sports I had played. Not just the Falcons team picture, with all my friends proudly standing and my dad there with his whistle, but all the teams I had played on that my dad had coached and the ones that he had not. Other pictures of me as well. A box full of them, left on the carport by my dad. I never made it to Rick's house for front yard football that day. I sat in an empty carport that smelled of oil. from heaven might drop from the sky 
proclaiming in no uncertain finality that it would all be over and I would be on my own. The problem with performance spirituality is that there is no spirit in it. It all becomes a lie. It leads to hiding, covering, lying, pretending, self-delusion, anything but relationship, anything but love, anything but real. But before Micah, this was all I knew. Like many men, I naturally was not drawn to the interior of who I was as a man and in relationship with God and others. Like most men I know, I defined it all through the external, particularly through performance, through doing. Believing and doing what I had been taught was right subtly became a substitute for having an incarnate, an intimate relationship with my Heavenly Father. Becoming a single father, and particularly the father of a child with a disability, God stretched me beyond my natural inclinations into the direction of learning things much deeper than I might have otherwise. Just as my and Micah's relationship was not about Micah's behavior, I realized that our union with God is about so much more than how we behave. Just as my and Micah's intimate relationship grew and was strengthened because of his dependence upon me as his father, I accepted that my heavenly father, God, was not looking for me to do well in church or in all my witness as much as he was waiting for me to recognize him and be in utter dependence upon him, waiting for me to trust him. Slowly, after Micah's initial touch, I began to realize that for most of my Christian life, I had been unable to sense God's presence. I believed in my head, but filled my soul not with love, grace, mercy, and the presence of my Heavenly Father, but with performance and pretense, a mask, all in a cheap stab at winning acceptance from him. I discovered through my and Micah's relationship that love earned is not love at all. It's payment. Love is only love when it is given freely. And God longs to give his love to us with no price tax. He can do this because any cost or debt owed was paid through Christ. I discovered that there was nothing I could do to make God love me more and nothing I could do to make him love me less. There was no big box in heaven waiting to be dropped as soon as I messed up. He just loved me. Micah knew this instinct instinctively about his relationship with me, not because he could explain or defend it as a truth and not because he had earned it by being the perfect child. He couldn't perform, perform to earn my love, even if he wanted to. He knew he was loved because he had experienced it at a truly deeper spiritual level. Our relationship just was. It existed. He was loved for, uh, not for anything he could do, but simply because he was mine. Looking back now, it is as if every time my little boy wrapped his arm around my leg and looked up in trust, my Heavenly Father was whispering in my ear, See? That's how I want you to trust me. My love for you as my son far exceeds your love for Micah. But you do not see it. Stop trying so hard. And let's just spend time together. God is here. He wants to love you. Like a dad was meant to love his children. But my experience is that most people have a relationship with him as I did. 
How freeing it would be to discover an intimacy with God, a deep dwelling trust and acceptance, such as that which broke through the walls of autism to allow Micah to know he was loved by his dad with no words spoken or deeds done to earn it. Sinclair Ferguson says that our self-image, if it is to be biblical, will begin just here. God is my father. I am one of his children. His people are my brothers and sisters. But unfortunately, so many of us build our self-image around our own performance, seeking to earn union with Christ through checking off a list of do's and don'ts, rather than resting in that which is already ours through Christ's sacrifice. There is an enormous freedom in accepting God's grace and acknowledging our dependence upon Him. When we do that, we can finally admit that, without fear of reprisal, shame, or guilt, that despite knowing Jesus and being forgiven, the fierce clash of lust, envy, fear, and pride still rages inside us. We can acknowledge that we are often unkind, mean, angry, selfish, and resentful, especially towards those we love. We can acknowledge all this and still rest in the peace of our Father's acceptance, grace, love, and pleasure. The performance mentality corrupts even our relationships within the church, creating an environment where often we are together, but we feel as if we are so very alone. Fellowship within the body is virtually impossible in many churches today because everyone is so consumed with performance that they cannot drop their mask and just be themselves. They cannot share their pain, joy, hurts, or questions with each other because any vulnerability might expose their inadequacy. So we as a church love each other's false selves, but we never know the reality of being loved with our faults. In the midst of all of, our, all of this, our Father's presence as mercy reigns in our midst, yet we miss it due to our self-imposed exile. Through Micah, God taught me that real, what real relationship is, what real acceptance is, what real love is, and I want you to know it as well. Most of my life I've been seeking love and approval from the absent father. I became compulsive, busy, performing. This is what men do when not raised with the love and example of a father. This is what we need, power, sex, money. It is why we must win. We do not recognize that what, it, what is at work deep within us is a father hunger that only God can fill. When, at the age of 27, I lost everything, it was a blessing that I could not have imagined at the time. It was a blessing because my many idols, some I had worshipped for most of my life, were stripped away. In my experience in ministry and counseling since, I believe that the single biggest hindrance to most people's relationship with God is their father is that they refuse to sacrifice their idols. Sadly, this is just as true for those the church, within the church as those outside of it. We need to come to terms with the reality that striving for, for prestige, position, possession, sex, and respect, in most cases, is a refusal to walk in communion with the Spirit of God. Most of us have allowed our souls to be neglected in exchange for cheap substitute idols. Some of them, even in the church. The respect of others, the accumulation of worldly trophies, will get us nowhere in terms of the spiritual life. 
It is only when we allow ourselves to be affirmed by the Father that we discover our need for nothing else. God is with you. And as He was with me. Perhaps you're asking, okay, okay, but what does that mean, God is with me? What does that feel like? Perhaps you were like I was before Micah and honestly have no frame of reference for this whole father-child relationship that God has called us into and purchased for us. Just like Jonathan and Matthew and me in our car ride the night that I spoke of in the previous chapter, it is not whether or not God is here, but it is how we choose to see and respond to His presence. He was with me in that carport while my friends played football up Hickory Drive. He is with Micah in the scariest inner workings of his disability. He was with Jonathan and Matthew to fill the void of a mother gone with no explanation. And He is with you now. Can you see Him? Look for the fireflies and the dancing trees. Will you dare try? Often, when they were younger, the twins and Micah would climb into bed with me. I would put my arm around them and they would feel safe. I remember a dream I had at some point in my journey to knowing God as my dad during, you know, around this time. He was in heaven seated on a king's throne motioning me to come to him, waving me towards him in all his majesty upon his throne. I walked up and hugged his leg, just like Micah often hugs mine. Then he lifted me up, placed me in his lap, and put his arm around me. And I was safe. God loves you. Do you know what that means? He's your father. Wrap your arms around his leg. Look up and see the faithfulness in his eyes. Crawl up in his lap. Feel the warmth. Feel the love and be safe.